In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. The alleged tendency of the new plan to elevate the few at the expense of the many, considered in connection with representation from the New York packet. Tuesday, February 19, 1788. To the people of the state of New York. The third charge against the House of Representatives is that it will be taken from that class of citizens which will have least sympathy with the mass of the people and be most likely to aim at an ambitious sacrifice of the many to the aggrandizement of the few. Of all the objections which have been framed against the federal constitution, this is perhaps the most extraordinary. Whilst the objection itself is leveled against a pretended oligarchy, the principle of it strikes at the very root of republican government. The aim of every political constitution is, or ought to be, first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. It was a Tuesday morning, February 19, 1788, when the local paper in Fishkill, New York, the New York Packet, or as it had become known by then, the Loudons New York Packet, published two essays in a continuing series of essays which had taken the nation by storm. They were called the Federalist Papers. You've heard of them, no doubt. But on that morning in 1788, it was still unclear who was writing them. They were signed by the name Publius, but uh, nobody knew who Publius was. I mean, other than the historical references, but as far as who was actually writing these essays, uh, there were maybe 10 people in the entire country, including the authors themselves, that, that actually knew who they were. One of them, by the way, was George Washington. He knew because he had been told uh, by the authors themselves, but even he pretended not to know who it was. Uh, there were a couple reasons for this. Uh, it was considered, my favorite Russian word, nikolterny. It means uncultured, although there has a deeper, visceral, emotional feel to it of disgust. Uh, considered really un, bad form, inappropriate, because there was an inability, they believed, in that era to separate the message from the messenger. And so if a political argument appeared in a newspaper or a book or a pamphlet or whatever and was signed by a specific person, it could either be rejected or supported based not on the merits of the argument but on the name of the person who signed it. And so they tended to hide who they were. I, we've all been 
we've all seen this happen. I used to be in radio. I, I can tell you, I've met people who have said to me, well, I don't listen to your show because you're on a conservative station. So you've never listened to a word I've said, but you've judged me based on my name, right? This was exactly what the, the Federalist Papers authors were trying to avoid. And by this point, this particular Tuesday morning in 1788, the Federalist Papers had really become a, a major hit, the kind of, the kind of sales hit. Uh, they had been bound into volumes already and were being sold uh, as they got enough to pu publish a book. They would, uh, they would publish a volume. And these were, these were hot, folks. Everybody had them. Everybody read them. Everybody, almost everybody in the country had read them either via, via a, bound, a bound volume, which were hard to find sometimes, or in the newspapers where they were being republished and republished again and again. They made the New York Times uh, top seller list of today look, uh, look pretty sad. That's how, that's how popular these things had become and how important they had become and how intense the debate over who the authors were had become. They were the best argument in favor of ratification of the Constitution. Now, today, we don't read them very often. We really don't. And if we do, we read snippets of them here and there. They seem quaint. They seem antiquated. Their argument against the Articles of Confederation seems confusing to us because we never lived under the Articles of Confederation. We don't understand those things. And so for us, having lived under the Constitution for our entire lives and having lived under the, the, the Bill of Rights and so forth and so on, we really don't understand completely where they're coming from. We don't understand the difficulty, the passion that was needed to argue in favor of the Constitution because today for us, it's second nature. I mean, we, we look at the Constitution, who wouldn't want that? It's a miracle. It's an amazing thing, right? Why wouldn't we celebrate that? Why wouldn't we have, you know, the, the famous, well, if I was there in 1787, I would have done it differently. If I was there, I would have ratified it. Eh, are you sure you would have? Because there were some pretty cogent arguments against the Constitution. And as I like to remind people, uh, the Bill of Rights wasn't put in by the people who supported the Constitution. It was put in by the people who didn't support the Constitution. Just keep that fact in mind. But on that particular Tuesday morning in Fishkill, New York, the New, the, the New York Packet published uh, essays number 56 and 57, which were addressing some of the issues with the House of Representatives and some of the concerns about this. Now, Fishkill, New York is, that's an interesting place. I, I had heard of it, but I never really connected it with, uh, with the ratification process and with the Federalist Papers. There's a reason why uh, the, the paper, the New York Packet in New York, uh, in Fishkill, New York, was used as a publishing point for these papers. To, to us today, Fishkill, New York is a quaint mm, town and in uh, kind of southeastern New York there, it's, uh, you know, it's a small town, 22,000 people. It doesn't really, you know, register on our radar as anything significant. But in 1788, Fishkill, New York had a, had a massive reputation. It was one of, the, one of the most important cities in the entire country. At one point, it had been the capital of New York in 1775 uh, for, for a bit. It had been where the legislature met in New York state as it was rapidly becoming. It's where uh, the New York State Constitution was drafted uh, prior, prior to the Declaration of Independence. It was, by the way, fish killed does not mean, uh, if you think it means, you know, place where fish was killed, that's not what it means. Uh, the kill is actually from the Dutch, 
meaning creek, so it's Fish Creek, New York. Uh, it played a significant role in the Battle of Saratoga, where the where Burgoyne landed his troops and marched up uh, to the to Saratoga, the battle there. But mostly, what it was known for during the Revolutionary War, it was the largest and most important supply depot for the Continental Army in the northern part of the country. Fishkill, New York, was was you know our Sharps Depot. I mean, it was it was that important to the Continental Army, that they had to protect it, that they had to guard it, that they, they had to situate it just right. And it was still well known. In fact, today, if you were to go to uh, any, look up anything about Fishkill, you'll find that there's a major, major effort going on to, to preserve the field there at, at Fishkill, New York, which had served as the Continental Supply Dump. It was an important city and an important newspaper. And in this paper comes this, these, uh, these essays, and particularly 56 and 57. As I said, they are the best arguments in favor of the Constitution. They're directed to the people of New York, the people of the state of New York. As we've talked about during this ratification process, each of the states goes about it slightly differently over a longer time span. By the time this, this essay comes out, six states have, have ratified. And... It was just a week or two before that Massachusetts had finally ratified and indeed had recommended numerous uh, rights to be a bill of rights, amendments to be added. There was still a lot of raw feeling between Federalist and Anti-Federalist. And again, those are incorrect terms, but they're the terms that we have accepted today. And these Federalist papers, which were known at that point as the Federalists, had the papers were. They, they had a certain quality to them that argued in favor of the Constitution, and they were considered to be brilliantly written. And they were read much differently than we read them today. Uh, I, I listened to someone, a recording of someone reading today, and I almost fell asleep. Uh, and that's the way we read them today. They're dull. They're wordy. Average sense, I swear to God, uh, I was reading about this last night. The average sentence length is somewhere between 33 and 35 words per sentence. Now think about that for just a minute. I have a, I have a writer's guide on my wall, and one of the things it says is short sentences, short paragraphs. None of that applied to the Federalist Papers. They were trying to make a passionate point, and they spoke with the language of that day. And I think if I could do something in history that would be uh, you know, just really off the cuff, it would be to have Madison or Hamilton read their letters aloud because I imagine that they would read them with a much different passion, a much different level of argument than, than we read them today because they were passionate about this. They were uh, just deeply embedded in the idea that the Constitution had to be ratified and if it wasn't, the, the United States was done. There was no way it could survive in its current form. And we've talked about that at great length. For all their, their grandeur and appeal, though, the modern readers, modern Americans, we, we dismiss them. They're old ideas. They're, they're ignored. And we ignore them particularly because of who wrote them. Uh, we, we look at so many of our countrymen look at the framers as, you know, old white slave owners. 
misogynist uh, slave owners. And so we just sort of dismiss their ideas out of hand and we don't pay attention to what they're saying, which is sad. It's intriguing though, because we're going to see here in just a moment that that plays right into that pubulous mentality, that idea that who makes the argument affects how the argument is interpreted downstream. Certainly we'll come to that. The, the papers, again, were originally published completely anonymously. No one outside of a very select few knew who, who the authors were. Now, there was a lot of guessing. By the time Federalist 57 came out, there was a, an almost cottage industry in the media uh, the media of that day spent as much time talking about who wrote them as they did what was in them. The speculation ran rampant as to who this could possibly be. And of course, most people paying attention knew that it pretty much had to be Madison and, and Hamilton. Uh, the, 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 the even money was on those two, primarily because they were the two most passionate about it. And of course, Hamilton was a New Yorker. And there was this mentality, this, this thought process, of, well, who else would do it? Who else could do it this well was kind of the, the betting money, the betting line was on those two, which of course it was, uh, with John Jay writing four of them along the way and then dropping out because he was sick. The papers were considered just beyond brilliant. They were recognized around the world as being the best argument in favor of liberty they really were. The Constitution was seen as the preserving of liberty. And these, these particular documents were seen by many countries as being, I, I've called them the Talmud of, of the Constitution in some ways. They're, they're, they're expository in a way that we almost never see. In fact, uh, one of the authors I was reading last night was lamenting the fact that we have these Federalist Papers about the Constitution, but when it came to the Bill of Rights, and the 14th Amendment later on, nobody bothered to do this. Nobody bothered to write down their arguments in favor of it, which was unfortunate because we, we, we've lost something there that we don't have uh, with regards to those things. So it's, it's kind of intriguing. But remember, and this is important, no one knew who had written them. And this secret was kept for many, many years after the fact. If you pick up a copy today, it will tell you who wrote that particular paper. Well, how do we know that? You might be asking yourself. Two days before he died, on July 12th, 1804, so July 10th, 1804, Alexander Hamilton walked into a friend's place of business. And the friend had on his shelf a, a, a copy, as, most, as many, many Americans did in those days, a copy of the Federalist Papers. They were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. They were constantly referred to. The French had offered the authors, the unknown authors of it, honorary French citizenship because these things were so, so amazing. For the record, uh, Madison did accept that. Hamilton never bothered to respond. On July 10th, 1804, Hamilton walked into this friend's store. And while he was not being or thought he was not being watched, he walked over to the bookshelf and pulled the copy of the Federalist Papers off the shelf. And it was reported that he seemed to flip through the pages a little bit and then was seen to slip something inside one of the pages, close the book, put it back on the shelf. And of course, two days later, he was dead. Years later, they opened up that book and found the piece of paper that Hamilton had left in the book. 
And of course, contained on it was a list of what he remembered as who wrote what paper. This was the first time anyone had had any idea who wrote which one. And you won't be surprised that there's controversy about it because years later, as he was uh, approaching uh, the end towards the end of his life, Hamilton or Madison also put together a list, which differed significantly from, from Hamilton's list. Madison's list is considered to be more correct. Uh, there's an assumption, and Madison, by the way, never accused Hamilton of lying. He never accused Hamilton of, of stealing something that wasn't his. What he said was, you know, his, his mind at that point was probably more on his impending doom, and he was just trying to get stuff down in a hurry in case the, the duel didn't go his way. Um, and so it's possible that, you know, he made some mistakes. It's no big deal. It's not, you know, we publish them as Publius, not as Hamilton and, and, and Madison. And so from that time forward, believe it or not, there has been, again, a scientific industry of analyzing Federalist papers to see who wrote which one. Right down to the modern day today, right now today, there are computers that are being run, programs that are being run to try to analyze the writing and determine who, which, who wrote which one. That's how we know the word structure and how many words are used and uh, all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it would be funny if it wasn't so serious, I guess. And the reason it matters is because, once again, the Publius argument, whose name is on which paper affects which papers really get taken seriously or not. Today, if you were to go anywhere in the conservative movement, you will find that the the Madison papers are taken much more seriously. Why? Because they tend to focus on personal liberty, personal responsibility, uh, the good of the country, those sorts of things. Whereas Hamilton's letters tend to focus on economic issues and the uh, putting of the, the economy of the nation ahead of, or at least perceptively, ahead of individual liberties. It's subtle. It's very, 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 very subtle, but it's there. And when these names came out, when they finally did come out, Jackson, by that point, Andrew Jackson has become president of the United States. And there is an emphasis or a re-emphasizing of the personal liberty versus the corporate mercantile interests. Remember, Jackson busts the first U.S. bank. And so those letters that are assigned to Hamilton tend to go into disinterest. They tend to get put out. They tend to get ignored. If you have a copy published in that era of the Federalist Papers, the Madison letters are probably underlined and dog-eared, whereas the Hamilton letters are kind of, you know, neat and pristine and, and pretty much ignored. But then an amazing thing happens. The Civil War happens. And at the end of the Civil War, all of a sudden Madison is seen as a white slave-owning Southerner, whereas Hamilton is seen as a unionist, an American who wants to move America forward into the manifest destiny and the economy and the growth and all those things. And so Hamilton's letters become far more impactful in the political thought of the day than Madison's letters do. Again, because now we know who wrote them and we're assigning purpose and we're assigning interpretation based on who wrote them rather than the content of the argument. Don't see why it happens? And then you get to today with this Tea Party element of things. And of course, Madison is back in 
favor again, while the mercantile elites, represented by the Hamiltonian thought, are, are out the window. They're, they're kind of ignored again. How much, how much more would we take from these, I wonder, if we didn't know who wrote which ones? If we just sort of took that out and took the content of the argument rather than the writer at face value. It's important to understand that. And when these were read on that particular morning, Tuesday the 19th, 1788, in Fishkill, New York, and then subsequently around the country, that was the approach that they took to these, to these particular letters. It was intriguing to see how they shifted back and forth because the names became known. Like I said, there's a, a, an industry going on in computer sciences to analyze uh, this writing. I'm surprised there isn't a, uh, a Federalist Papers code yet. That's probably what's coming next. You know, deeply embedded in the Federalist Papers is who's going to become president at what particular point. That would be an amusing uh, thing to run. The other thing to keep in mind and remembrance is that part of the reason that they hid these names was because Hamilton and Madison were as diametrically opposed as you can imagine two men with the same goal to be. They both wanted ratification of the Constitution. They both wanted to preserve the Union. But their ideas of how to do that politically were such that eventually Hamilton would call Madison, some years later, uh, his deepest political and personal enemy. They did not agree on much of anything other than the Constitution needed to be ratified and that they were the best two to write these essays to convince the people of New York to vote in favor of it. Madison was short. He was frumpy. He was uh, priggish, uh, which is a great word. It kind of means conceited. It kind of means that he, he felt himself above other people. He was certainly what you would call a mercantile elite of that era. Hamilton, on the other hand, was a rough and tumble, tall, good-looking bounder who, who, even though he was married, was not unknown to go outside of the bounds of marriage. And he was kind of countrified, even though his political views were mercantile elite, and even though Madison, who was a mercantile elite's political views, were more countrified. They couldn't have possibly been more opposite than each other. And yet they came together to form a partnership that in many cases and many thought processes probably saved the Constitution. Their arguments are cogent. Their arguments, unlike the anti-federalists, who had some valid and particularly good arguments, the anti-federalists were never able to come up with the, the package that the Federalist Papers were able to come up with. The, the Anti-Federalist Papers are scattered. They're all over the place. They don't follow any logical uh, proceedings. They're, they're like shotgun blasts here, there, there. I mean, they, they don't really follow any pattern, whereas the Federalist Papers do. And the Federalist Papers address arguments, whereas the Anti-Federalist Papers just sort of address, issue arguments. The Federalist Papers are, without a doubt, some of the most important and influential writings, not only in the history of our country, but in the history of the world. If, if you've never read them, I, I can't 
you know, I can sit here and tell you to read them, but really, unless you can read them with the passion, with the understanding which, with, with which they were initially delivered, you're going to be bored. You're going you're gonna to think, oh, these are old ideas. These are, you know, they don't really apply anymore. These arguments don't really matter. And yet at the same time, there are found deep within it gems that resonate with us even today. And it was this day, Federal, February 19th, 1788, that Federalist 57 was first published. And I've mentioned on numerous occasions that of all the Federalist papers, 57 is my hands-down favorite. There's, there are many of them that I like, several that I love, but 57 is above all of them. Now, I'm not going to sit here and read you Federalist 57. I doubt I could do it justice without some, some drama. But the reasons why it has spoken to me so loudly is because of what it contains with regards to the question. And I get asked this question at least weekly and when I was on the air um, multiple times a week. Dave, where did it start to go wrong? When did it start to go wrong? What's wrong with our country? Why can't we follow this Constitution? Why? And of course, that was loudest. Uh, starting in 2008, should have started long before then. But it, it really, with the birth of the Tea Party movement, it really became an intense question. And like so many things, if we had bothered to know and understand these arguments, we would have understood. This was expected. We were, we were told by Franklin, we've given you a republic, madam, if you can keep it. But it was up to Hamilton and, Jeff and Madison, sorry, I almost said Jefferson there, Hamilton and Madison to really outline what that would mean, what that would entail, what that would create. And one of the arguments against the House of Representatives was that much like the House of Commons in England, it would become a de facto uh, who's who club. It would become a, a rich person's uh, club, it would become, in essence, a, a political class unto itself. And there was no way to prevent that. And Madison took on that argument. And he went through the process by which, uh, by, by which how many representatives there should be. That's 56. And then in 57, he gets into the five reasons why the House of Representatives won't become like the House of Commons. It won't become a a rich boys club. It won't become all those things. Uh, number one, the people will choose distinguished men to uphold their engagements so that the representatives will have an obligation to stand by their words. We will choose men and now women who mean what they say. That there will be no, uh, that there's no qualification here. It doesn't matter what religion. Remember in the House of Commons, religion paid a big deal. Here it won't. Your status won't matter. Your, your, your economic position doesn't matter. None of that matters, he writes. Number two, the representatives will sense a mark of honor and gratitude to feel affection towards their constituents. They'll be honored to be elected. Number three, selfish motives of the human nature bind the representatives to constituents because the delegates hope to seek advancement from the followers rather than from the government. Remember in the House of Commons, you were advanced into the cabinet by the government. You, you Politically, you went uphill because of the government. Here, you would only go uphill because you 
served your constituents well. Well, you did great as a representative. Let's make him a senator or a governor or, dare we dream, a president. But that relied on his or her service to his constituents. Frequent elections, number four, would remind the representatives that they are dependent upon the constituencies for their loyalty and support. Therefore, the representatives are compelled to remain faithful. Every two years, they would be reelected. We've, we've had this discussion about term limits. Well, we have term limits. And while there are arguments to be made in favor of term limits today, I would submit to you that it's because number four no longer applies. Representatives no longer rely on constituents, do they? <laughs> no, they rely on money. And number five, the laws created by the legislatures will apply to all members of the society, including the legislators themselves. And yet, how often do we see now uh, the meme making its rounds? We want a law, a constitutional amendment that says that the laws have to apply to them as well as us. And in fact, it's here in this discussion about these laws that Madison really hammers home the entire point of this entirety of the Constitution. This has always been the strongest bonds by which human policy can connect the rulers and the people together. It creates between them that communion of interests and sympathy of sentiments, of which few governments have furnished examples, but without which every government degenerates into tyranny. If it's to be asked, what is to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discriminations in favor of themselves and a particular class of society, I answer, the genius of the whole system, the nature of just and constitutional laws, and above all, the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which nurtures, nourishes freedom and is in return nourished by it. If this spirit shall ever be so far debased as to tolerate a law not obligatory on the legislature as well as on the people, the people will be prepared to tolerate anything but liberty. Such will be the relationship between the House of Representatives and their constituents. Duty, gratitude, interest, ambition itself are the cords by which they will be bound to fidelity and sympathy with the great mass of the people. What Madison is essentially saying there is the way you make sure that the House of Representatives doesn't misbehave is by the spirit of the people of the United States making sure that they don't misbehave. We, the people, are what will effectively, essentially, eventually guard our liberties which is, of course, why I love this paper so much. I find it in a renewed belief that we, the people, choose our destiny. If we have crappy representatives, it's because we voted for them. Because we, didn't put, we the people, didn't put our destiny first. And at the end of the day, the very meaning of the word liberty is to control our destiny. We, the people, control that. As Madison wrote in Federalist 57, published in the New York Packet, February 17th, 1788. And hopefully, if we can get past our prejudices of who wrote what and how it seems antiquated, we can recapture that spirit which has become debased and return ourselves to determining our destiny and to protect our own liberty from a government that will take it away if it gets the chance.
Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to ConstitutionThursday.com.